Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day. I think that's a great way to start the day is saying Happy Lord's Day. Um, this is the first day of the week, not the last. And so we want to act accordingly. So I'm excited about Psalm 4. It's one of my favorites. And so I, I, I can't think of a better way to start the day. Well, there's 149 other good ways also, which we'll go through slowly. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 4, and while you're turning to Psalm 4, I'll pray for us this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to just um, begin to get the Lord's Day going, to attune our hearts to the Word of God and to the things of God, to rid ourselves of the worries and the difficulties of this world, the difficulties that, that we face every single day. And Lord, we would also ask for your grace and your mercy. We would join the psalmist who exhorts us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We know that uh, your beloved Israel, though they are apostate and they have turned away from you, they are still your people that you love. And they have come under horrible attack. Lord, we pray that it would drive many to Christ. We pray that you would protect your beloved land. In the meantime, I pray that we in the church would be faithful to proclaim the gospel to bring many into the kingdom and that our little efforts here on White Lane would be a small part of that overall effort. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to look into Psalm 4, to be comforted by a glorious prayer from a brother in the Lord. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to talk about balance. And balance is something some of you are good at and some of us are not as good at. It's important in every area of life. Um, men, we're called to balance work and family. Ladies, you're called to balance your, your marriage and your uh, role as a mother. Children are called to balance responsibility and play. Church members are called to balance Family life with a burden for the things of the kingdom. We, we find balance everywhere. And I'd like to talk to, this morning about the fact that even in prayer, balance is important. A, a balanced approach. The disciples' prayer that we've been studying on Sunday mornings, this is a perfect example, obviously, because this is a model prayer from the Lord Jesus himself. It's perfectly balanced. Prayers that are overly filled with requests can become selfish. Uh, prayers that are overly filled with complaint might betray a sense of ingratitude or, or lack of thankfulness in your life. Prayers that are overly concerned with personal issues tend to betray a lack of love for others. And so balance is important. However, I would imagine that when you're really in trouble, when your back's against the wall and you're literally in an emergency situation, when there's a crisis abounding, one that's right at your doorstep, I think we all understand a prayer that's overly filled with requests, complaints, and personal issues. That's all that's on your mind. And yet, what we have in Psalm 4 is an example by the beloved psalmist of Israel, David. When he's faced with a life-threatening situation, he crafts a beautiful prayer that can rightly be characterized as balanced. Now, Psalm 3 that we looked at last time was composed early in the morning on the day when David was facing the rebellion of his son Absalom. And having been ousted from the throne of Jerusalem and now he's on the run 
for his life in the countryside. Psalm 4 is almost certainly written the evening of the same day. So you have Psalm 3 written early in the morning, Psalm 4 late in the evening. And in fact, Psalm 3 and 4 have a nickname. They've often been nicknamed a prayer for the morning and for the evening. And so they, they go together very well. And I think it's important to note that David bookended a day that could have been his last day on this earth with prayer. Not just prayer, not just a, a little, Lord, please help me, amen, but crafted, beautiful, balanced prayers. Composed, thoughtful ideas to the Lord. And Psalm 3 and 4 have a couple of vital similarities. Both of them, I love this, speak of sleeping in peace because of God's protection. And both of them record insults from former supporters and friends who have turned against David and and how David responds to that betrayal, that horrible feeling. So here is the balanced evening prayer of David. Psalm 4. For the choir director... With stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh. Make me to abide in safety. Here's the balance. I'm going to give it to you up front in three parts. First of all, David prays for preservation. David prays for preservation. And I'll repeat these. The second part of the balance, David pleads for his enemies. He pleads for his enemies. And then the third part of the balance, David praises God for contentment. He praises God for contentment. So David prays for preservation. David pleads for his enemies. And David praises God for contentment. First, David prays for preservation. In verse 1, David prays in supplication. He says, answer me when I call. Now, this is a strong verb. This is, this is an imperative. This is walking a fine line. This is in Hebrew, giving a command to God. And I think we would all understand the heart of David that he's not trying to tell God what to do. He's just saying, I don't have time to mess around with saying, oh Lord, if it would be your will. And he's just saying, answer me. I I need an answer right now. It's It's a show of desperation. But I want you to notice that he gives glory to God in a very specific way. He addresses God as, oh God of my righteousness. This isn't speaking of moral righteousness. This isn't speaking of of David being a moral man. It's speaking more of the idea, just like the English word says, that David is in the right. That he is the rightful king of Israel. And so he's giving glory to God in that he's saying that, God, you're the one who placed me on this throne. Therefore, you must be the one to put me back. 
It's all on you. All the glory must go to you. You're the one who made me the king of Israel in the first place. Here I am on the run in the countryside. Therefore, if I'm going to be king again, it must be you. You're the God of the one who is, you're the one who's made me in the right. And then he says, you have relieved me in my distress. Uh, this is, this word relieved is a beautiful word in Hebrew. It means God, you've made room for me. You've made a wide place for me. You ever try to help a toddler walk across a room and you know they don't have any radar or anything and they just ram into stuff and you're, you're kind of pushing things out of the way so that that toddler can get through without uh, running into things. That's what David's saying. You've, you've pushed things out of the way. You've made a wide place for me. You've made room for me today. And what does he mean by this? Well, it means he's survived the day. That morning he prayed, Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. And so David has survived another day. Thousands of enemies are surrounding him, and yet here he is in his tent. He made it through the day. Uh, This is so important for you and for me that even in the midst of asking things of the Lord to take the time to express gratitude for what he's given you at that moment, for even just having made it through the day, And I want you to think about this for a minute. No matter how bad a day you're having, so far you've made it through all of them, right? And in fact, I can guarantee you, you will make it through every day of your life except one. That's it. And that one will actually turn out to be the best day of your life. You will make it through every day. There will be a time when you can lay your head on your pillow and say, well, worst day ever, but I'm here. And God sustained me. And if you will take that moment to do what the, what, what the king did and to say, you've made room for me today, God. You made a wide place for me. And if you'll go back and think about all the little ways that the Lord led, that he blessed, that he was kind to you in that day, I, I would maintain that every Christian can point to every day of his life or her life and see the Lord making a wide place, making room for him. Every time, every day. Well, then he picks up his request. He says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He recognizes and officially validates his belief that it's only the grace of God that allows David to even ask that all answers to prayer are an expression of God's grace. I I think that is a, a terrific place to be, to never think that God is obligated to do anything except to keep his own promises. He's not obligated to you. I I think the attitude of Job is the attitude to have. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a simple, glorious attitude. I want you to notice the balance here. In the first part of the request, he's forceful. He appeals to the fact that God is the one who made him king and therefore God should restore him. But then he softens. He says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So you can almost hear the desperation at the beginning and he decrescendos to great tenderness and great giving in to whatever the Lord would do. So the first part, David prays for preservation. The second part of this balanced prayer, David pleads for his enemies. He pleads for his enemies. He's speaking, as it were, directly to his enemies. He he addresses them. O sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? Verse 2, but this is an intercession. This is a prayer. And so he's speaking to God and speaking to them kind of simultaneously. And what he's giving is his wishes for them. And this is 
Quite amazing. I'm going to identify three ways he intercedes, three intercessions. The first intercession that that he says to them, submit to God's plan. Submit to God's plan. Verse 2, O sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. David's letting them know, guys, you're on the wrong side of God's plan. You're on the other side of this thing. I'm on the right side. He is the God of my righteousness. The glory was given to Him as the King of Israel. They were given, the glory was given by God, and yet they're shaming Him. They're not supporting Him. They're making Him a reproach. Instead, they believe lies. They've loved what is worthless. You remember last time we saw that Absalom, his son, over a period of years, uh, the Scripture says, won the hearts of Israel, won the hearts of the men. That he was, somebody would be on their way to see the king, and Absalom would say, hey, you know, Dad's busy. Let me just help you with this. Let me, here, here's some money that you need or here, here is uh, something I can do for you. Or let me put it this way, not to get political, Absalom was a Democrat and I'll tell you why. He wanted to win the hearts of people by giving them stuff and then getting into power as a result. That's exactly what wicked men do. And so he won these people, but it was all a lie. It wasn't real. It wasn't for them. Absalom had no care for Israel. He had no care for people. All he had care for was that throne. And so people believed the lie. David challenges them. How long will you seek falsehood? How long will you love lies? But David, not Absalom, was called the king of Israel. David makes this claim in verse 3 that God has set apart the Holy One, David the king, He set apart the Holy One for Himself. Now David isn't referring to moral holiness or perfection. He's referring to the fact that God ordained him as the king and it was for himself, for God's glory, to accomplish God's plan. And David reminds them, Yahweh hears when I call to Him. David hears Him. Why? Because I'm the king and God hears me. They're going up against God, not just up against David. And so David's praying that they'll submit to God. Uh, just a little side note here, uh, since I brought up politics, I'll try to close that door also. Um, we live in a time where you can't identify any one person that is definitely God's man. You, we can't identify that one. This was easy. David was God's man. You support him. He was the one that God chose. There's a second intercession. Shudder in humble repentance. Shudder in humble repentance. Verse 4, he tells them, Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. He says, tremble. This is a word that can mean be angry. In fact, this is quoted in Ephesians 4 and the, the Greek translation makes it to the New Testament as be angry. But it, it, it's a general word that means to be disturbed to the core of your being. To be emotional at a high level. In this context, this is a prayer that David's enemies will be so deeply disturbed by their own rebellion that it leaves them trembling in horror and extremely eager to stop sinning. David prays that they would ponder their sin, that they would be still. What he's calling for, ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. He's calling for total self-abasement, total self-humbling before God, to be in shock at how they let their sin take hold of them. This is not a picture of somebody 
coming and intellectually saying, I acknowledge that I may in fact have sinned in this one way. No, this is a destruction of your own heart. This is somebody crawling to their bed going, I can't believe I stood against God's anointed. I can't believe I stood against God. I can't believe I believe lies. I can't believe I followed Absalom. This is, this is destruction of the heart, trembling, being anxious before the Lord, even being angry at your own sin. I can't believe I went down this road. And then the third intercession, sacrifice with a trusting heart. He wants them to sacrifice with a trusting heart. Verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Offer the sacrifices that are right to approach God in a worshipful sacrifice, no longer performing external deeds of religiosity, but coming now with an internal reality of faith with genuine, true repentance. And he says, put your trust in Yahweh. That is to... Submit fully to him that the New Testament is not original with the concept of Savior and Lord. Old Testament has that concept as well. God is your Savior. He is also your Lord. You submit to him. You put your trust fully in him. Now these three intercessions, I don't know if you caught this, actually form a beautiful gospel presentation. You can use verses 3 through 5, 2 through 5 rather, to present the gospel. Let me go back through it. The first intercession, submit to God's plan. You submit to the fact that God's plan is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only way to be reconciled with the Father. There are no other options. That is God's plan. Jesus is the Holy One. He is the one set apart. There are not many ways to God. You submit to God's plan. There's no other option. The second intercession, shudder in humble repentance. Shudder in humble repentance. The one who would be saved must repent. He must have an attitude of trembling and shuddering at his own sin, not justifying himself, not agreeing with himself that he's really spiritually fine. I mentioned this yesterday morning to the men. I'm always amazed at how many professing Christians say, well, I've searched my own heart and I don't see any sin there. Well, Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is desperately wicked. And 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, I searched my own heart too. And you go, aha. But then he says, but that doesn't acquit me because only God knows my heart. And then the third part of this intercession, this gospel presentation, sacrifice with a trusting heart. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the only means by which the penitent person may have his sins atoned for. It's the only means. It requires saving faith, that by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, what's phenomenal about this? What is phenomenal is that David is pleading for his enemies, even as they literally have surrounded him. What an act of kindness. What an act of grace. And it's very instructive to us in prayer. Even if you feel like you're praying for your life, even if you're dealing with wicked people or people who are treating you like an enemy, you still pray for those who are causing you pain. You still pray for the ones that you see as in need of God's help and God's mercy and God's grace. That's a balanced prayer. The first part of this balanced prayer, David prays for preservation. The second part, David pleads for his enemies. And to complete this package, this balanced prayer, David praises God for contentment. He praises God for contentment. Verse 6, many are saying, who will show us good? David acknowledges that even some with him are 
are saying, is God ever going to help us? Is this situation possible to rectify at all? And so in response to those who would cast doubt on David's favor with the Lord, David reminds God, as it were, that God's face is turned to David. That a symbol of blessing and grace, the face of God, that the face of God ought to light David up, light his path. And when you read, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh, it reminds us immediately of the blessing of Aaron and his sons in number six, doesn't it? It's a very official blessing. Number six, 24 through 26, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face on you and give you peace. Now, here's what's important, and here's the connection to Psalm 4, verse 6. The very next verse in Numbers 6 says this, God states, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel. So what's David doing? David is invoking the name of God. He's saying, I'm part of that covenant. I'm part of that blessing. I'm part of your covenant people. And on top of that, not only am I part of God's covenant people in general, I am your covenant king in particular. And so he is doing what God said, so they shall invoke my name. God, please turn your face to me because you promised to, because I'm part of your covenant. And so what's he doing? He's referencing this blessing. He's rightfully claiming to have access to this blessing because he's part of God's covenant. And listen to his contentment. This is a a beautiful picture that kind of takes us from low level now to just kind of flying high and looking at glorious scenery. Verse 7, You have put, past tense, gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. This is a very poignant picture. And it's one that I think it's hard for us to, to relate to. So let me see if I can put you in this time just a little bit. Israel was an agricultural society. You didn't get a paycheck every week. You didn't get a paycheck every two weeks. You, you got paid when God brought a harvest to you. That's when you made your, your wealth. That's when you made your blessing. And the greatest times of the year were harvest times. Every culture in history has had harvest festivals of some sort, some sort of gratitude to their deity. And, and the Israelites were no different. When the few seeds, I mean, you think about this, that that the number of seeds you can hold in a bag can feed your family for a season when it grows, it's phenomenal. The few seeds that the farmers planted months earlier are now yielding great quantities of food. The, The grapes that they harvested yielding an abundance of new wine. It's a glorious picture. It's a happy picture. It's the happiest time. But it's not just a picture of a good harvest year. This is a picture of a nation that's at peace. Why is this so important? Israel as a nation, and we've seen it literally happen this weekend, has been under attack their whole history. When a man in Israel could actually get to the point of harvesting his crop, when he could plant grape seeds and five or six years later actually harvest grapes and make wine from it, you know what it meant? It meant that nobody's bugging me. Nobody's attacking me. Nobody's coming and killing my children, raping my wife, Nobody's stealing my land. Nobody's taking everything I own. Nobody's killing me. Nobody's dragging me off. This isn't just a picture of a good harvest year. This is a picture of peace in the land. In fact, we take it a step further. This is the same picture given in Amos chapter 9 
of peace in the land because Christ is reigning. And so now we, we go beyond David in a tent surrounded by the soldiers of Absalom. We go to his mind going forward to a day that at this moment, I have the same peace as if we are in the kingdom of Christ in which peace will reign on the earth. That's contentment. He's gone forward in his peacefulness. Talk about obeying Colossians 3, 1. A thousand years before Colossians was written. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And as a result of this contentment, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I I somehow memorized it in a combination of about five different Bible versions. I don't know. Uh, I memorized it as I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. In the LSB, verse 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. Now, anyone can lie down in bed, right? That's just a physical act. David's not saying that. What he's saying is that he's not going to do what all of us have done at one time or another. He's not going to lie down in bed and then lay awake all night worrying about this. No, he's going to lie down and he's going to zonk out. He's going to lie down and sleep. It's Snoresville for him. And, and I, I can't wrap my mind around this, that you could probably walk outside this tent and take a rock and throw it and hit men who want to kill him. And he's sleeping in a tent, not a fortress. And yet he says, I'm going to lie down. I'm not just going to lie down. I'm going to fall asleep. And ostensibly, for two nights in a row, while being surrounded by his enemies, he's had a great night's sleep. Why is he content? He's content because you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. He's content because he thoroughly believes that God alone is the one who makes him safe. And that if he's not safe, that's God's business. Or to put it this way, he's thoroughly convinced of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. He's thoroughly convinced of the truth of Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who is there who speaks and it happens unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? He's thoroughly convinced of Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. David is thoroughly convinced of Genesis fifty twenty. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day to keep many people alive. And if it had been written yet, David also would have been thoroughly convinced of Romans eight twenty eight that we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, He would have been thoroughly convinced of Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Just a little tweak of our memory. Remember, David is the same man who went up against the fiercest warrior on earth with a piece of leather and a rock. And God was triumphant. So this is not new to him. He has exercised this faith before with Goliath. He declared victory before it happened and he's doing the same thing now. 
I want to extract for us three lessons from this. Lesson number one, David teaches us how to be thoughtful in prayer. He teaches us how to be thoughtful in prayer. This prayer is balanced. It's composed. It has a plan. It has a direction. It goes from request to intercession to thanksgiving to praise. He declares his contentment in the Lord and it's it's not emotional. It's just based in the sovereignty in the sovereignty of God. And certainly there may be emotion involved, but he's not looking for a feeling to make him feel good. Those will betray you. He is content because God is sovereign and he believes it with all of his heart. Those are truths that have sunk deeply into his heart over years and years and years. And they're coming to bear fruit now. And so he's thoughtful in this prayer. He's theological. How can you be thoughtful in prayer? I think this is a weakness with many believers. And so let me give you three ways to be thoughtful. And they're very simple. The first one is more of a negative. Don't always default to spontaneous prayer. Don't always default to spontaneous prayer. Yes, Paul said to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. That's great. But it's a false measure of righteousness to say that your prayer should always be able to be spontaneous. That's, that's a false measure. Take times to be thoughtful. Here's a second simple way to be thoughtful in prayer. Plan your prayer time. I don't mean schedule it. I mean actually plan it. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, here's a sample. How about today I'm going to pray for preservation, plead for the lost, and praise for contentment. There's a plan. Or how about this plan? First, I will ascribe greatness to God. Second, I will pray for Christ to return soon. Third, I will ask for what I need. Fourth, I will ask for God's grace for my daily sins. And fifth, I will ask for spiritual protection. Or we could put that same outline another way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think your planned prayer times will be rich. They'll be rewarding. They'll be a joy to you. And here's a third way to be more thoughtful. Write a prayer once in a while. Write a prayer once in a while. Somebody came to me years ago and they said, well, it's, it's, it's wrong to write your prayers because they should be spontaneous. And so I just ask the question, so written prayer is wrong? Yes. So turn to Psalm 1. Written prayer is all throughout Scripture. Do you think that David just magically came up with Psalm 4? No, he thought about it. He, he worked through it. He, he composed it. One in the morning, one in the evening. You know what the value of this is? It makes you slow down. It makes you chew on what you want to communicate to the Lord. It makes you ponder with your words. And, and you know, I, I've heard this argument too. Well, God already knows what I'm going to say, so I'm, I'm just going to spontaneously say it. You know, if you've been married for a long time, you finish each other's sentences a lot. Just because you know what the other one's going to say doesn't mean you don't want to hear it, right? So, lesson one be thoughtful in prayer. Here's a second lesson we could take away. Pray with the mercy of God. 
praying with the mercy of God. It's worth it to return to this idea. I, I think it's astounding that David is praying for the repentance of every man who's trying to kill him. That's a, that's a phenomenal prayer of grace. And, and yes, there's a place for imprecatory prayers. He does that too in other places in the Psalms. But in this case, David prays for the mercy of God. Now, I think probably one of the reasons we could surmise at least from history is that the men he's praying for are men he knows, led by his son, as evidenced by what was his reaction when Absalom was killed in battle. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I have died instead of you. And so he's, he's praying for mercy. God, these men don't know what they're doing. Turn them back to you. One of the most Christ-honoring things you can do is to pray for those who are harming you. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who cause you pain. Pray for those who have been the most unkind to you. And, and most especially, pray for the lost who are in those categories. There's really no place for us whatsoever to hold any sort of bitterness, anger, or upsetness at a lost person. There's no place for it. When the lost person treats you terribly, your primary response is to be pity because they can treat you terribly for the rest of your life. You're still going home to be with Christ. And that lost person, if he doesn't repent, will be in the eternal flames of the lake of fire. I just love the fact that even when he was in trouble, David thought of the souls of his enemies. What what a heart-softening act. And perhaps in the halls of heaven... Some of these former enemies will find David and fall down at his feet in thankfulness for Psalm 4. Do you remember, O king, how you prayed for my soul? God heard your prayer and here I am. What a glorious day that would be. Let me give you a third lesson. I'm glad I've been here long enough to just be blunt with you and so I'm going to be blunt. Here's the third lesson. If your prayer life is routine and mundane, that's not God's fault. If your prayer life is routine and mundane, that's not God's fault. Like any communication, prayer takes effort. In my experience, there are at least two reasons that a person's prayer life becomes routine and mundane. Two reasons it becomes routine. The first one, he doesn't read the Psalms. He doesn't read Psalms. You want your prayer life to grow in depth Read the Psalms every day. You know, it's, it's beautifully set up. You can read five a day and in a month get through all of them. And the second reason a person's prayer life becomes routine and mundane, and there's no other way to put it. It's just spiritual laziness. Spiritual laziness. So how do you combat that? And how do you give more balance and depth to prayer? One way is to pray a psalm. Or pray a passage of Scripture, which means, by the way, knowing it first. You, you need to know the passage. You need to understand it. It's most meaningful if that passage is fresh in your mind. And so you could, for example, pray through Psalm 4. It's fresh in your mind. It's fresh in your mind. So I'm going to actually close our time together this morning. And I'm going to pray through Psalm 4. And I'm going to just ask you to join me in prayer for a few minutes through Psalm 4. So let's bow together and pray. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Our father, King David, cried out to you for help. We're not kings, we're not special, but we are your children through Christ and we know that it's your grace that condescends to hear our prayers. O sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood?
Father, in this world, sometimes we feel surrounded by people who love what is untrue. We feel that in our country. We feel it in our state. We feel it in our city. And in some cases, we feel it in our own families. And so we join with David in asking how long, but we also join with his confidence in you. But we know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. Father, just like You set apart David as king, You have set us apart as Your children to someday reign with You. And we're so very glad that You hear us when we call, that we may boldly approach the throne of grace. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Father, we remember our salvation and we remember how torn up we were over our sin and we pray to never forget that day. Let us continue repenting ever more quickly as we walk with you in humility. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Our Father, we thank you for the precious, perfect sacrifice of Christ. We do trust in you. We've placed all of our hopes in you We've placed all of our hopes in your Son, and we know that this trust will not be shaken. Many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. Our Father, no matter who may cast doubts on our faith, no matter who may mock us for following you, no matter how inconsequential our little lives might seem, we're part of the new covenant, and you have shown in our hearts the light of Christ unto salvation. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Father, with the help of your Spirit, we can rejoice now as if the kingdom of Christ has already come. We can have the joy of the coming kingdom. We are invited to think on things above where our Savior is. And in Christ, we're already filled up with the riches and the treasures of heaven. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to abide in safety. Our Father, what more can we say? We are content. We will sleep in peace. You are our rock. You are our refuge. You are our safe place. All because of Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.